0: Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: Every Wednesday night, come listen to The Land of Aru, a show all about the award-winning high-fantasy audio series, Carcerum. Join Anthony Corona in listening to an episode of Carcerum with 360-degree sound design, a completely original score, and find yourself in the middle of an adventure filled with monsters, sword fights, and magic. After the episode, listen as Anthony interviews cast and crew members about their careers and the amazing process of Carcerum. That's the land of Aru every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific on ACB Media Stream 3. Presented on ACB Media 3 in association with Shane Salk Productions and Sunday Edition.
2: The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ plus community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPRIDE.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media 1, and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers. Someday we'll find Welcome, welcome, welcome to Pride Connection, just a few days before Thanksgiving. (laughs) I'm one of your hosts, Anthony Corona. I'm here with President Gabriel Lopez-Cafati. Say hi, Gabe. Hey, President for now. (laughs) You may have listened to our last episode with the Candidates Forum, so I will just do a brief rundown. Our immediate past president is going to be this guy over here. (laughs) Our new president is founding member Leah Gardner. I'll be your next vice president. Board member Chris Snyder stepped up and was elected secretary. And Maria Christik will be our treasurer. Tonight, we have a really special program for you. We partnered in the past with Eric Marcus of Making Gay History, which Gabe will talk about a little bit more in a minute. We're going to present to you a portion of that program tonight hoping that it will inspire you to join the rest of our um four-part series the next one will be during the week of december 12th stay tuned for the exact details you know we'll put it out on all of our various social media channels and email lists etc this is an excerpt from the first of a four-part series entitled lessons in advocacy learned from the lgbtq community so gabriel tell us a little bit about why this is happening and a little bit about eric marcus
3: so this is happening due to a collaboration that was brought to us uh by a great advocate uh, an awesome friend just a wonderful all-around lady uh, and a a a, huge ally uh, yes a great ally another floridian uh, Debbie Grubb, who uh, I cannot start mentioning his uh, her accomplishments. Uh, Debbie has been president of the Florida Council of the Blind in the past. Uh, she's managed our legislative and governmental affairs for many, many years before passing on the torch to Anthony. Uh, She's just an amazing person and an advocate at heart. So she was listening to one of Eric's programs without knowing that we knew Eric, that Eric is a friend of BPI. And uh, she contacted us and said, we have to do something with this gentleman Uh, because she was so impressed. And she could see how in his program, Making Gay History, in his podcasts and different Uh, editions of it, he talks a lot about advocacy and how advocacy started in the LGBTQ community starting from Stonewall forward. And Debbie noticed how many similarities and how much we could learn in the blind community from the experiences that the LGBTQ community has lived throughout the decades in advocacy and in making sure that LGBTQ rights are upheld and are protected by law. So we started this collaboration, and this is the product. We uh, had this phenomenal first program, which you will hear parts of uh, in the next few minutes. And uh, we have designed a total of four series programming, in which we will dissect and we will use parts of Eric's programming with his permission to talk about what lessons can we learn in the blind community and how can we put those lessons into practice in our day-to-day advocacy efforts. So, like Anthony said, stay tuned. We're gonna have a program in December, the week of December 12th, and stay tuned also on community because we will be putting the details for participation via Zoom, the time, and the ACB Media channel on which it will be aired for you to follow. So stay tuned. We're very excited with this programming. Thank you, Debbie Grubb. Thank you, Eric Marcus. And thanks to all of our listeners. So before we let the... um tape run, so to speak. I just
2: want to urge everyone out there listening, if you haven't experienced Making Gay History, please go check out the podcast. You can find it on all of your major podcast catchers. And um, I want to remind our listeners or or maybe tell our listeners who might not know that some of these recordings that you'll hear are the only court recordings that, that still exist. Many, unfortunately, of the founding members of the LGBTQ advocacy movement are no longer with us for various reasons, you know, the biggest one being the HIV, AIDS epidemic, but age is also no discriminator or respecter of personage. Everyone gets old and unfortunately, everyone leaves us to go to the next place at some point. And Eric has an archive of recordings of these folks that don't exist anywhere else in the world. So we're very lucky to have been able to have access to this. And in the next program that we'll have in December, there's going to be a lot of room for us to discuss and explore together what some of these voices who created what Eric likes to call good trouble, what they accomplished and what stood out about them and what can we Adopt within the blind and low vision community in our advocacy. So without further ado, let's run those tapes. Again, a huge thank you to Eric Marcus.
1: Thank you, Gabriel, and thank you, Anthony, and all of your colleagues for inviting me to join you tonight. So, what I'm going to do is is uh share with you some clips from my archive drawn from the Making Gay History podcast, examples of what I call troublemakers, people who made good trouble who didn't like what they saw or what they experienced and decided to challenge it in in the context of how they were harmed or in the context of how they wished the world would be different for them. But before I do, I want to tell you how the project came about in the first place, uh, how the Making Gay History podcast came about. Originally, I was commissioned to write a book on what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Movement back in 1988. I was commissioned by an editor at Harper & Row. Uh, which is now HarperCollins, when I was working at CBS News. And I had to make a decision. Was I going to leave CBS where I was a segment producer and up for a four-year contract? Or was I going to work on this book project? And at the time, at CBS, I really wanted to be an on-camera correspondent. But I was already out of the closet. I'd done a book prior to my history book called The Male Couple's Guide to Living Together. And I'd been out since college, and there was no going back for me. Um, But I knew that there was nobody on camera on any of the national news programs uh, on cable or network. And so I asked one of the senior executives at CBS News, who was responsible for hiring correspondents, whether or not they would ever at CBS News put an openly gay person on camera. Um, I didn't want to go. I wasn't planning to go on camera as a as a gay correspondent. I wanted to be a correspondent and I was gay. And after much back and forth, because the senior executive really didn't want to answer my question. I said, I really need to know for my career, would you ever put an openly gay person on camera? And she said, no. So I left CBS. I took on this uh, uh, history book. I used broadcast quality equipment to record the interviews. I checked with my boss, who I just adored at CBS, a man named Jay Kernis, who had created Morning Edition and Weekend Edition for NPR. And I said, what do your colleagues use to record interviews? Because I thought one day someone might want to mine my archive to do an audio documentary or a scholar who was researching history. And I knew that many of the people I was going to interview had never been interviewed before or had only rarely been interviewed um, and also didn't have long to live necessarily because they were very old um, or because they had AIDS. So fast forward to 2015, um, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And in 2008, I had donated my entire collection, all of my audio recordings, all of my papers, my video recordings to the New York Public Library with the agreement that they digitize my entire collection. Um, So when I called in 2015 to check on the status of the the digitizing, they had just finished. And what I decided to do with my collection was to um, work with an education nonprofit that develops LGBTQ-inclusive resources for teaching American history. And we were going to use short clips from my archive uh, as the basis for lesson plan. That project, very long story, very short, morphed into the Making Gay History podcast, which we launched in uh, actually six years ago in October, um, expecting to, we were told to expect to have maybe 500 to 1,000 listens for every episode. We've produced about 80 original episodes since then um, over the course of 11 seasons. We've had 5 million episode downloads in 200 countries and territories around the world. And just to give you a comparison between the reach of a book and the reach of a podcast, The original two editions of Making Gay History in hardcover and paperback have sold a total of 35,000. So that compares to Making Gay History's episodes, which have been downloaded 5 million times. So I've had the opportunity with the podcast to share these stories, not in print now, but in the original voices of the people who I interviewed. So I feel like the people I interviewed were not very happy that I presented their stories in print. And that they figured out how to get me fired from my job in 2015 with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is a whole other story, um, because they wanted me to come back to this work and to share their voices so that I could bring LGBTQ LGBTQ history to life in the voices of the people who live. So I'm going to share my screen now and introduce you to some of the people I had the privilege of meeting. And I will set the context for each of them. I'll take you through time as well. We're going to start with, with a story that's from 1947. But the focus is going to be on troublemakers, the context of the trouble they made. And I don't know if there'll be direct correlation between their experiences and what people can do now in terms of activism, but there's a lot we can learn and be inspired by uh, from people who lived in the past during some very difficult times and still found a way to change the world. So give me a moment while I share my screen. And the first person I'm going to introduce you to is a woman named Edith Ide. I knew her as Lisa Ben. And if you play word games and play with those letters, you get lesbian. And the reason I interviewed Lisa Ben, Edith Ide, was because I had read about a, a woman who, when she was in her 20s, worked at RKO Radio Pictures in Hollywood as a secretary. And her boss had told her that he wanted her to look busy. He wasn't always going to be able to keep her busy, but he didn't want her to read or knit. So she decided in 1947, when there was no such thing as a gay organization of any kind, that she would publish what she called a magazine for lesbians called Vice Versa, America's Gayest Magazine. And this was long before the word gay was used for homosexual people. But the in crowd knew what what, what gay meant. So in this newsletter, what I call a newsletter, which Edith called a um, magazine, she wrote reviews of movies, of, of poems. She wrote a column called The Watchima Column. And it was in The Watchima Column where she talked about her hopes and dreams for the future. And that's what attracted me to uh, want to interview her in the first place. Um, and when I went to interview her in Burbank, California, uh, at her little cottage on her front porch, I found out that she also uh, sang in the gay clubs in the 19, in the lesbian clubs in the 1950s and 60s. What happened was when she was a young woman going out to these clubs, in the evening, the owners of the clubs would allow um, the straight guys to come in and stand at the bar and in the back and watch the girls dance, as Edith told me. And the entertainers, who were drag queens, would make jokes about lesbians playing to the straight men in the back. And Edith did not like that at all. So she decided she was going to do something different. So what she did is she wrote her own music and her own lyrics to her own music. And also she wrote lyrics to popular songs. And she went out and she sold her act to the lesbian clubs in Los Angeles in the 50s and 60s. And so when she told me about this, I said, well, could you sing some of your songs for me? So I recorded about 45 minutes of Edith's songs. And the song I'm going to play for you is a special song with special lyrics that she wrote later in life about being a senior citizen. So listen closely to the lyrics. Um, this is not one a song that she played in the clubs, but it's one of my one of my favorites. So this is Edith Eyed, eighty nine, from her front porch in Burbank, California.
4: Hey. Yeah, I need to warm up a little bit. <clears throat> I should tune up a little bit first. Hello, young lovers, whatever you are, I hope. Your problems are few All you cute butches lined up at the bar I've had a love like you Stay cool, young lovers, and follow your star Stay cool, be faithful and true Don't mess around with the opposite sex it won't do a thing for you. I know what it means to wear customized jeans and go out for a casual cruise. You saunter on by and that glint in your eyes speaks of hope you can never quite lose. Don't cry, young loafers, because I'm alone. I've a stockpile of wild memories. A gay senior citizen, all on my own. At least I can do as I please. Senior life has compensations, my friends. And at least I can do as I please.
1: So the person you heard applauding there was, was me, um, an audience of one. You know, for change to happen, you have to be able to imagine it. You have to be able to dream it. And I don't know how Edith managed to dream of a better future for gay and lesbian people in 1947 when she was very much alone and no one even imagined that there would be anything called a, a gay and lesbian rights movement or an LGBTQ civil rights movement, but she dared to dream. And this next clip I'm going to play is where she talks about her column, the Whatchema column, where she spoke about her hopes and dreams for the future and recorded those dreams in her magazine, which she then distributed to her friends, which they then shared with their friends. So she had to dream and then she inspired. Here's Edith Eide again.
4: It was just some writing that I wanted to do to get it off my chest, and I was a very lonely person, and I could sort of fantasize this way by uh, writing the magazine, you see. And uh, then, uh, oh, I'd write the the end, the what the column and that was just ideas that happened off the top of my head that I would write about and say, "Wouldn't it be wonderful if?" Not fantasize exactly, but. Imagine Imagine about how things might be in the future with us. What were some of the things you imagined? Well, I imagined that perhaps we would have a lot of magazines (laughs) and that perhaps even movies might be made about us. I would hope that someday we would not be looked down on with so much disdain. Well,
1: I think this may be where you... This is the column, uh, this is the article, Here to Stay, September 1947, Volume 1, Number 4. Whether the unsympathetic majority approves or not, it looks as though the third sex is here to stay. With the advancement of psychiatry and related subjects, the world is becoming more and more aware that there are those in our midst who feel no attraction for the opposite sex. Homosexuality is becoming less and less a taboo subject, and although still considered by the general public as contemptible or treated with derision, I venture to predict that there will be a time in the future when gay folk will be accepted as part of regular society. That's pretty bold stuff.
4: Well, I guess it is. I never thought of it as being uh, being bold at the time. I was just, uh, as I say, I was just sort of fantasizing. But it all has come to pass.
1: I think of Edith as a prophet of the movement because it has all come to pass and more. One of the sad facts of Edith's life is that in her early 90s, She had to uh, uh, be placed in a nursing facility, but she couldn't care for herself any longer. And she felt compelled to go back in the closet because she was afraid that if the staff of the nursing facility where she was living knew she was a lesbian, that they wouldn't give her proper care. So we have a dreamer in Edith Eyde, someone who could imagine the future. And then we have Frank Kameny. Frank Kameny was a Harvard PhD in astronomy, he worked for the Army Map Service. And then in 1957, he was fired because he was gay. So most people in those days, during what's uh, referred to as the Lavender Scare, and I'll do a little bit, uh, first a little background. In 1953, President Eisenhower signed an executive order banning gay people from federal employment. Thousands and thousands of gay people were fired from their jobs. Most of them, virtually all of them, just tried to disappear so that they could have, they could go find another job. You now, Frank was, was, um, Uh, fired from his job, but couldn't find another job in his profession. He was essentially blacklisted. So he decided he would fight the federal government and change uh, change what they were doing. I remember him saying to me, uh, I don't allow my government to declare war on me. And if they declare war on me, I'll declare war on them. So uh, what Frank did was, he wasn't happy with the state of the gay rights movement in those days. Um, It was a very small and fragile movement called the homophile movement. So he started a chapter of his own in 1961 after he had taken his case all the way up to the Supreme Court and was turned down. They wouldn't hear his case. Um, started a group called the, the Madison Society of Washington, D.C. So this is a clip of my interview with Frank Kameny in Washington, D.C. in 1989. Um, I interviewed Frank at his house, in his office, surrounded by files stacked high um, on his file cabinets and dust kitties everywhere. And he addressed me across it, from across his desk as if I were an audience of hundreds instead of just one. So you'll hear me and you'll hear Frank Kameny. What the, what the government essentially did is they turned an intellectual bookish yeah. into a radical.
5: Thank you for using that word. I have had cases over the years that I've handled of meek, mild, unassertive, unaggressive people who just want to go about doing their work and suddenly they are hit hard, they are trampled upon with the hobnailed boots, and suddenly it does exactly that, it radicalizes them, and off they go marching militantly, and case after case after case. So anyway— So by
1: 61,
5: you had become radicalized. Oh, very much so, very much so. So anyway—
1: Oh boy, they didn't know what they So we own.
5: founded the organization, and um— Now, the movement of those days, and I say this next, not critically and not uh, necessarily derogatorily, because it was a very, very, very different era. and We were sick. We were sinners. We were perverts. You have your long litany of, of pejoratives. There was absolutely nothing whatsoever which anybody heard at any time, anywhere, at all which was other than negative. Nothing. And so the movement, uh, predictably, in retrospect, uh, responded accordingly, and that was the nature of the movement.
1: So people were frightened they had good reason to be.
5: Well, I was not only frightened, it was simply a lack of uh, 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 intellectual strength. We had to defer to the experts.
1: Oh, you hated that, didn't you?
5: My answer was, we are the experts on ourselves, and we will tell the experts they have nothing to tell us.
1: I can't help but laugh. I remember that interview so well. I was just overwhelmed by Frank. But Frank is what it took. There were so few people who stood up in those days. It was terrifying. You could lose your job. You could be thrown out of your house. Your family might reject you. But Frank had already lost his job. Um, and, uh, uh, and had run out of money. And he just decided he was going to fight. And he ultimately won. It took 14 years to get the civil service uh, rules changed uh, so that gay people weren't discriminated against in, in uh, federal employment. There's a wonderful picture of Frank that I love. He was at the signing of uh, an executive order by President Obama in, uh, during his administration. Protecting uh, federal employees and providing providing couples with benefits, uh, same-sex couples, and there is Frank in the in the Oval Office, uh, just beaming, uh, meeting the president. So he's an example of a citizen a citizen activist who who didn't just use himself. He created an organization and amplified his actions by bringing other people along with him. So Frank, along with people like Barbara Giddings and Kayla, who's in. Organized some of the first protests, public protests by homosexuals, uh by gay people in front of the White House um, and other federal facilities in 1965. So Frank is one of my heroes. He uh was was not the easiest person. Uh he was also very difficult to interview because he he didn't let me direct the conversation. Uh he was uh he talked over me. I just gave up at some point and just let him talk. He was extraordinary. Extraordinary. So we're going to jump ahead. I'm not going to talk about the Stonewall Uprising, which uh, um, was mentioned earlier in the introduction, except to say that it was a key turning point in the movement in 1969, when the police on a routine raid of a gay bar in New York City, which is something they did all the time, not just in New York, but it's cities around the country where they arrested gay people and hauled them off to jail simply for being at a bar where there are other gay people. That happened on June 28th, 1969 uh, in Greenwich Village at a bar called the Stonewall Inn. And gay people fought back that night. And it led to an enormous explosion, ultimately, in the gay rights movement in terms of organizing. And uh, after 1969, uh, when there were about 40 to 60 gay rights organizations, within the first year, there were several hundred more organizations across the country, many of them at universities um, and colleges, but also in big cities and small cities. One of those organizations was called the Gay Activists Alliance in New York City. And their young president was a man named uh, Morty Manford. And on his 21st birthday, uh, he was at a protest outside um, uh, an auditorium at New York University where then-Mayor Lindsay, who was running for president, spoke. And uh, the protesters couldn't get inside, but somehow young Morty found himself inside. So he's an example of someone who was involved with an organization that marshaled its uh, efforts to protest things that they felt were wrong in terms of how gay people were treated, because the police were still beating up gay people in those days, at will. And at this protest, he found himself in a position to make a difference. And at age 21, this is what he did. Somehow or another, I got inside. I, I mean, All by
6: yourself? I mean, you were you're, you're
0: yeah, the only one to get in. Yeah. What, maybe a thousand people sitting in the audience, and, and the mayor was up at the podium talking. Well there I was. What was I going to do? It was just me. So naturally I did what anyone else would do. I walked onto the stage and I took the podium away from John Lindsay. (laughs) (laughs) I walked up right next to him and I uh, said, uh, so the audience could hear, the police are brutalizing gay people. Three blocks away from where we're sitting. Oh, the, and, and the, the police um, harassment and, and attacks were even going on that night. That was one of the points that I made. I wasn't there very long, but what I said made an impression. The police dragged me off the back of the stage and they ejected me through, you know, some, some or another uh, exit. Apparently, after I left, the audience called the mayor to account for what was going on with the police bothering the gay community. And um, apparently, John Lindsay had made a statement that uh, he would permit me to speak if, if I wanted. Of course, he knew Don well. The police had already thrown me out. Didn't realize that I would come back. And I I snuck back in. I mean, I broke through the security lines again. I, I can't tell you how I did it, but I got back in, and I came right down that aisle. And I could see him looking up from the podium at me, you know, biting his lip and saying, Oh, shit, here he comes again. And I walked right back up on stage, and I said to him, I understand you said I can speak. (laughs) And he said yes, and he yielded the podium to me. And I uh, addressed the audience about the police brutality and, and the harassment we were facing, and I said my piece, I thanked them, and I left as
1: surreptitiously as I'd entered. One of the things I love about this interview is you can hear in Morty's voice, he was in his late 30s when I interviewed him, his sort of astonishment at what he did. Um, And I think it's the kind of thing you can do when you're 21 years old, because you don't know that you can't do something. And you haven't seen enough of life to lose your sense of outrage. And he was fueled by, um, by his sense of outrage. And it took enormous courage to do what he did. Morty was one of my favorites. We both grew up in the borough of Queens. Um, his, he and his mom co-founded PFLAG, Parents, Friends, and Families of Lesbians and Gays. The name is slightly different now. Um, they founded the organization nearly 50 years ago. Um, Morty didn't live long enough to see, the, uh, see his story in my book. He died uh, in May of 1992. If I remember correctly, he was 41 years old. He died of AIDS. So next I'm going to introduce you to two of the uh, remarkable women who probably were responsible for some of the biggest changes in terms of the, uh, uh, of how gay people were perceived. Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoosen, along with Frank Kameny, organized those original protests in the mid 1960s in front of the White House. Um, They also were very engaged in getting homosexuality removed from the list of mental illnesses. In 1973, and what was so important about that was that before that, gay people were considered mentally ill. Now, you can't hire a teacher who's mentally ill. you can't be a lawyer if you're mentally ill. Um, how could you be a doctor? So there was an enormous burden on gay people before homosexuality was removed from the list of mental illnesses in the DSM. But what I loved about Barbara and Kay was their sense of humor and how they used humor um, as a tool in raising consciousness and making change. So one of the things that they were very interested in, Barbara in particular, was books and the American Library Association, because Barbara first found herself in a book called The Well of Loneliness. It's a a romance novel, a lesbian romance novel written in the 1920s. And Barbara recognized herself in the book. That's how she understood uh, her sexuality. And she, she felt that it was important for people to know about all of the positive gay books that had been published up to that point in 1971, when she and Kay um, rented a table on the convention floor at the American Library Association Convention um, in Dallas. Now We've all been to conventions, um, and convention floors have multiple booths. Usually there are curtains, and you decorate the curtains. And they prepared a bibliography that filled a two sides of a legal-sized sheet of paper. There weren't a lot of positive uh, gay books in those days. And they made lots of copies. They distributed them throughout the convention center. They taped them to uh, columns. They taped them to the elevators. And they had stacks of them um, at their table on the con- at the convention floor. And nobody was interested at all. So on the fly, they figured out how to get some attention. Because what was really important then was visibility. Most people had never met a homosexual. They thought that gay people lived under rocks. And the way that they thought change would happen was in no small part to make gay people and the issues that affected them visible. So this is what Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoosen did in 1971 at the American Library Association Convention in Dallas on the convention floor with their booth to get some attention.
7: Well, we decided to bypass books and show gay love live, so we called it Hug a Homosexual. And we stripped it down to the bare gray curtains, and we had a sign up, men only at one end and women only at the other, and we stationed ourselves, all four of us under the signs, to give free, mind you, free, same-sex kisses and hugs. Well, let me tell you, the aisles were jammed, but nobody came into the booth.
4: And Life Magazine was there. Life that Magazine was the
7: photographer point. was there. Two D- Dallas television stations had sent camera crews. <laughs> right, and and the I lights were going on. And I think people rather intimidated. Yes, the lights were on, and all these people jammed in the aisles, craning their necks to see the action, but nobody wanted to take part. So we did the action. We kissed and embraced each other for two hours. We handed out copies of the bibliography. <laughs> we called out encouragement. We kissed and hugged each other some more. Alma Routsong was an absolute peach. She and I were on the female end, and a couple of the men were on the other. And we did all this ourselves. We ha- that really put so us there. On, we the map. Were on
8: the six o'clock news and the library, and, and people again we're livid. They said <laughs> nope. we have all these famous authors here, and all they cover is this kissing booth.
7: <laughs> they put us on the six o'clock news. They put us again on the eleven o'clock news, and again the next morning. This was news. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the
7: local, the local yes, <laughs> is it
4: <Denver>? Dallas, Dallas, <laughs> Dallas.
7: <laughs> it was wonderful, and it really, our spirits soared because mm-hmm. we, you know, really the booth also had uh, a message that was useful in any arena, mm-hmm. and that is that gay people are not willing anymore to be subject to a special double standard. If we we are, we should have the same right to express our affection publicly as heterosexuals have.
1: No more, but no less. I just adored Barbara and Kay. Um, I stayed in touch with them in the years after I interviewed them and uh, they moved into a retirement community in uh, Pennsylvania, just outside of of Delaware. And I went with my producer to visit Kay uh, several years ago uh, after Barbara had died. And Kay told us about how, and I love this, she started a gay table at her retirement community. So that her activism, which was once nationally oriented, was now focused on where she was living. And so of course, Sarah Burningham and I had to go to the retirement community for dinner. We invited ourselves uh, to the gay table and we did a special episode, a bonus episode called Kayla Hoosen's Gay Table. It was just incredible to be with all of these people who had made some contributions in some way to making gay history. Uh, in fact, I e- asked each of them to complete the phrase, I made gay history win. And each of them had done something in their lives to, to move the ball forward. Now I'd like to introduce you to Deborah Johnson and Zandra Rolan Amato, um, examples of, of other citizen activists. This is in 1983, and by 1983, um, gay rights laws had been passed in cities and states across the country, including in Los Angeles. So when Deborah Johnson and Zandra Roland went to dinner, uh, uh, well, they went for what was supposed to be a romantic dinner at a restaurant called the Papa Shoe, um, where they had these romantic booths for couples. They were refused service. And, well, here's what happened. This is uh, Deborah Johnson and Zandra Rilan motto in 1989 telling me about their night at the Papa Shoe restaurant.
8: At the time, I was working on Saturdays. So this was the first weekend that we were going to have a complete weekend together uh since we had gotten together it was also the year right before martin luther king's birthday was made into a holiday and a friend of mine told me about this restaurant that was really nice and the restaurant had these six booths on one side that were real romantic and we got there and the um the waiter kind of questioned us about are you sure you want the booths and we told him yes and it's the type of booths where you have to move the table out so that you can get in like a horseshoe and in the middle of the horseshoe was like a fountain and there was a guy with a a violinist who came around and and the boot right in front of the of the table was a little white sheer curtain that closed in the candlelight, and it was just romantic
1: did it occur to you that that this might be a problem
8: not at all i mean to me discrimination never enters my mind first ever so they showed us to our table we sit down and we're taking our jackets off and this tall humongous guy comes by and and yanked him. the table away and told us you know you know so sorry you know but you can't sit here it's against, it's the, against law the law and you know to serve two, men, two or, men or two women in these booths you know, and we asked for the to see the manager and we the weren't manager. gonna move the guy that uh, turned out to be the real maitre d kept giving us the you know the back of the bus type of thing you know well you can sit over there and you can sit over here and you'll have free drinks and the whole thing but you will not you cannot sit here you will not be served here and kept insisting that it was against the law it was against the law and you know that that really oh it makes me crazy thinking about it you know it made me more mad So you got to remember, we were there about Martin Luther King's birthday, and then we were going to take it off the next day as this real show of solidarity and its importance and the whole bit. And if there's anything the King had taught us, it was that we could sit anywhere in the restaurant we wanted to sit.
1: So Deborah Johnson and Zandra Lanamada were not in the habit of suing people, but they decided they were not going to put up with this. And they hired an attorney named Gloria Allred, a young attorney who was not yet famous for the civil rights cases and cases regarding women that she had had taken on in later years and won. Um, And they won their case. Uh, And while the case was a very important one, uh, because it upheld a law that had not been tested before in terms of discrimination regarding gay and lesbian people, the owner of the Papa Shoe restaurant decided he was not going to serve same-sex couples. So he called a press conference. He had the romantic booths hauled to the curb, and he announced on this day romantic dining dies. So in a way similar to what was done in the South, when uh, communities were ordered to uh, integrate the swimming pools, but instead of integrating, they closed the pools. Papa Shoe, the owner of Papa Shoe, decided he wasn't going to serve same-sex couples. But Deborah and Zandra won their case, and they are among my favorite examples of citizen activists. Another person I'd like to introduce you to is Perry Watkins, and he's another another citizen activist who really was just trying to go on a uh, go, go on about his life. Um, and first, the Vietnam War got in the way because he was drafted in 1968, the age of 18. He was studying um, uh, dance in Germany and was called home to Tacoma, Washington, uh, where he went to the Army Induction Center because he was drafted, and he filled out the form. That, that included a question that asked if you had homosexual tendencies. And this was uh, at a time when the military didn't take gay people. And Perry Watkins checked off the box that said he was gay and fully expected to be on a plane back to Germany so he could continue with his, his uh, studies. But they took him. And he wondered in the interview whether they took him because he was black, thinking that he would come home in a body bag. Because he said, I wonder how many black men who were gay were taken Even though the military said they wouldn't take gay people because they expected them to be killed. I have no idea. And that's a great uh, uh, research project for a graduate student. So Perry was drafted. He spent 15 years in the military. He had a very successful career. They knew all along that he was gay. He even performed drag in his alter ego character named Simone. Then after 15 years, he was thrown out of the military because he was gay, even though he had a stellar career. And he decided he would sue. And at the time I interviewed him, it was eight years into his case, because he was uh, discharged, he got a dishonorable discharge, he got no benefits at all. He had trouble finding work. He lost his home. It was foreclosed. He was living in a rental house. He couldn't afford to pay for heat. So we sat in our coats uh, during the interview, and I felt guilty. My batteries had run low, and I needed to plug in my tape recorder, and I felt bad that I was using his electricity. So um, I couldn't quite believe that that Perry had filled out the form, checked the box, and they still took him. And this is the point in the interview, in this clip that I'm gonna play for you, where he is saying, where he's trying to convince me because I can't quite believe it. Here's Perry Watkins in 1989.
6: I was not trying to go into the military. That's why I told them I was, that's why I find it absolutely ludicrous that the army is in court saying, we don't want this man, well, why the hell did you take me? Right. And why am I the one that is being accused of being at fault? It is amazing, but no, I checked the block, yes. They sent me in to a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. who said to me, why did you check this box? Yes. And I went, because you asked me to fill the form out honestly. Well, do you object to going in the military? No. I didn't want to go in the military. Who did? Right. But I certainly had no objection to serving my country. You were raised to be honest. Extremely so. Why I really checked the box was because I thought if I go into the military, I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm gay. I know myself well enough to know that. So when I get thrown out, mom will be angry if I lie. Mm. That was why I checked the box. When I get put out of the military, mom will be more angry with me for lying, then why didn't I just tell the damn truth to begin with?
1: Mm-hmm. Harry ultimately won his case. He was one of the first people to be reinstated in the military. He decided to take a settlement and left the military. He was the Grand Marshal in uh, the New York City Gay Pride March in 1993 um, and then died of AIDS in 1996, if I remember correctly, which I think is why his story is largely forgotten. But another example of someone who, whose life was turned upside down and he decided that he would not stand for it. So um, every movement needs its allies. The parents of PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, was and is a very important organization celebrating its 50th anniversary next year. I mentioned Morty Manford earlier uh, in the presentation, who with his mom co-founded PFLAG in 1973. Actually, we had first meeting in 1972. Um, Paul Light Goodman uh, was president of PFLAG in the 1980s. And you know, we sometimes wonder how people become allies. What is it about their lives that makes them, if not different, inspires them to try to make change? Paulette had a daughter who was a lesbian, but it was Paulette's early experience as a Jew in occupied Paris during World War II that shaped her feelings about what it means to be different. So here's Paulette Goodman talking about what happened um, uh, during World War II when she was a child and what she observed at home.
9: The next day, my aunt went and heard what happened.
1: I actually got ahead of myself. Uh, and didn't explain the context of this. Paulette's sister was taken away by the Gestapo and, uh, and her husband was taken away too. So her sister and, uh, brother-in-law were taken away, but they managed to keep their young, uh, uh the young child, Paulette's, uh, nephew. If I remember correctly from this, uh, this, this clip, the police then showed up at their door wanting to take the child.
9: The next day, my aunt went and heard what happened. And I don't know why she didn't bring the little boy home. Maybe the concierge wouldn't give him to her. But then my mother sent my sister Gabby to pick up André. And as they were walking back towards where in our neighborhood, they were followed by the police and the Gestapo. They followed her to our apartment. And she came up with the two French policemen. The Gestapo stayed downstairs. And uh, they told Mrs. Rosenberg, uh, not in Madame Rosenberg, um, you will have to let this little boy go with us because his mother is asking for him. And my mother says, if my daughter did not take the child yesterday, that means she doesn't want him to, to, to be there. And I have brought up nine children, and I can bring up a tenth, Please leave me my grandchild. This was her first grandchild. She tore her hair out. she I mean, she made such a scene. And we were there in the kitchen when that happened, and, you know, I remember everything that happened. And they said, Look, you better quiet down, and you better let the child go, because if you don't, there are those two Gestapo downstairs. They'll come up, and they'll take all of you with all the children. So they had no choice. They took my nephew, and he was reunited with my sister. Uh, and I think they spent several months uh, in Drancy, which was a camp mm-hmm. right outside of Paris. And even, and we did get a couple of letters, you know, through the letters over the wall. Uh, we even sent some packages, whatever my mother could get her hold of to, you know, some food uh, in that camp. And then... Uh, we knew they were sent to Auschwitz and we never heard from them again. So that's the background. Now I know what it's like to be in the closet. I know what it's like to be a minority, to be threatened. Uh, I lost uh, most of our family except for uh, my immediate brothers and sisters. Uh, um, one, my older sister, uh, never came back. but aunts and uncles, uh, cousins, people whom I'd never knew, who lived in Poland, were Mm -hmm. all exterminated.
1: So, it makes a difference what your life experience is, uh, in terms of being an ally. So even if you aren't, in this case, Paulette was not gay herself, she certainly knew, as she said, what the experience was like of being different, of being discriminated against. Um, And one of the the important things about allies is they can often go places and speak to people in ways that we cannot. Um, And in the case of parents and friends of lesbians and gays, parents with gray hair are often uh, heard better than young people. And in those days, in the 80s, certainly, elected officials were more likely to listen to people like Paulette than they were to listen to young gay people themselves. So I have two more clips to share with you. I'm sorry, I have one more clip to share with you. This is Vito Russo. Vito Russo wrote a book. This is also how change happens. He was a film history expert, and he decided to take a look at how gay people were portrayed in films, because his theory was that public opinion about gay people was shaped by Hollywood through how Hollywood portrayed gay and lesbian people in in films. I found that book in 1981 on a shelf in an editor's office when I worked as a temp at Harper & Row Publishers, the same publisher that later published my history book. But at the time, I was a $3.25 an hour clerical person right after college, opening envelopes in the special sales department and separating checks from order forms. Uh, Actually, there were three piles. One was for the checks, one was for the order forms, And one was for the staples and the uh, paperclips. But it was at that office where I discovered Vito's book, um, which changed how I saw Hollywood and films. And subsequently, Vito co-founded an organization uh, originally called the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, which lobbied Hollywood to change how they portrayed gay people and the things they included in the films. And and we've seen an enormous shift over the years in how gay people have been portrayed. Vito also co-founded ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. When I interviewed uh, Vito in 1988, he was one of the first people I interviewed, and I knew he was ill. Uh, His partner, Jeffrey, had died three years prior, and Vito likely didn't have long to live. So in this clip from this interview, you'll hear us talking about legacy, the things we leave behind, and the importance of passing on the ball to the next generation. So making change isn't enough. We also have to ensure that we pass the torch and pass along the things we've learned about activism and about change to the next generation. So here's Vito Russo from his uh, home office on West 24th Street and 9th Avenue in December of 1988. And I don't think you'll be able to hear it, but he's chain-smoked through the whole interview, so you might hear him light a match at some point and take a drag on his cigarette. I find it interesting, from
10: what I know about the, uh, the history of the gay movement, that there always have been and there will always be people who are willing to put their lives on the line for these ideas, starting from... Germany in the turn of the century, in 1895 around and then into the early teens and 20s, there were a group of people in Germany, headed by Magnus Hirschfeld, who were willing to put their lives on the line. They were willing to make a movie called Different from the Others, which the Nazis seized and burned. That in the 1940s and the 1950s, there were the Harry Hayes and the Barbara Giddings and the Mattachine Society. And then in the 60s, Gay Liberation. It's the more radical issues that I think are still going to be fought over. Whether gay people have a right to adopt children, get married, get married, teach in the public schools, which they do now, you know, but be open about it. Right. And those battles are battles that are going to be fought long after you and I are gone. But you have to make a contribution while you're here. I mean that's been my whole life is to leave my book behind. That I know after I'm dead that book is going to be on a shelf someplace and what I have to say will reach people. And the things I've written. You know, because it's like, what's? It, who was the person who said that? Pedro Almodovar. He said, the thing is, is you can't regret your life. Otherwise, why did you live? What was the point of having a life if you didn't say something or do something that was going to survive after you're gone? Mm-hmm. And that's the way I feel about it. I mean, I really feel the reason why I'm here is so that I could leave... This book and these articles so that some 16-year-old kid who's going to be a gay activist in the next 10 or 15 years is going to read them and take, carry the ball from there. And that'll happen. Happens with me. Mm-hmm. Harry Hay passed the ball to the Mattachine and they passed the ball to us. And you'll pass it on.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, something that Vito didn't know was that, actually, i mean, just pause for a second and talk about the importance of stories. Telling our stories is so important of the struggles that we've experienced, the discrimination we've experienced, so that the next generation can understand the fights that have been fought before them, and that they can carry on the fight for the for the rights that haven't been won yet, for the discrimination that still happens. Vito couldn't have known that when he spoke to me in nineteen eighty eight, that the interview that I recorded would one day be included in a podcast episode that was released in the fall of two thousand and sixteen, and that that. Uh, audio recording would be heard by a 15-year-old disabled lesbian in Moscow named Mina, who would then write to me to tell me how inspired she was by Vito's story, and could she translate his transcript? Uh, We provide full transcripts on our website of all the interviews. Could she translate his transcript into Russian and post it on her blog? so that people in Russia, other, other gay and lesbian people, could read, his trans, uh, read the transcript while listening to the English language interview so that they could be inspired to take action and to make change the way he did and the way in which she was inspired. I think Vita would be very happy to know that the ball had been passed from him to me and from me to Mina, and now I pass the ball to all of you um, to take your stories forward and to take your battles forward and share it with the next generation and to inspire them to continue the fight.
3: Wow. Wasn't that an amazing compilation of advocacy and action? And like Anthony said at the beginning of the show, and like Eric always tells us, those are good troublemakers.
2: Yeah. As you heard um, in the program, I actually had the opportunity to meet one of the voices in New York City in the early 2000s. um, And I will admit at this moment, I did not have the life experience to understand who I was talking to and what that meant. If only I could go back and have a redo of that conversation, I would ask so many questions and I would pay so much more attention. But thanks to Eric Marcus, we have the opportunity
3: to go back and visit with these folks one way or the other. So Gabe, take us out. So I just wanna leave everyone with this thought as we go into preparing for our December, which is gonna be program number two of, like I said, a four-program series, to listen and re-listen as many times as you need. Check out the podcast and think of similarities because that's what I've been doing. I have noticed similarities between the advocacy movements of both the LGBTQ community and the blind community. And uh, there are things that are not so far away. There are things that are very, very similar. Things that are totally applicable from one community to the other. And I will have to send out a huge, huge, huge plug to... BPI, because as was brought in our initial conversation in Program 1, in conversation with Debbie and Eric, we realized that, you know what, what a great point to meet in the advocacy field, being BPI, the place where LGBTQ plus meets blind and visually impaired. So we are so proud uh, that BPI is such an icon and an institution in matters of advocacy. And we're getting stronger thanks to the help and the work of our members, our board of directors, and our members include allies. We love our allies, as Debbie Grubb is one of our strongest allies, and Eric Marcus He's an institution. Thank you for bringing history and bringing those voices to us. You've been listening to Pride
2: Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org.